Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experience drive insights. Today's guest is Tim Stock, co-founder of Scenario DNA, a foresight consultancy. Me and Tim have had the luxury of having conversations before. I've spoken at a class of his that he teaches at Parsons School of Design. So we do go back a little bit, but I'm really excited to have this conversation because he's someone who is critically thoughtful about the role that design plays in our life. Scenario DNA has brought forth this concept of culture mapping, which is complex, which is very different from complicated. So I want to, first of all, welcome Tim to the show. And I think this idea of culture mapping is a really good place to start. One of my core conceits is that the world that we live in is very complex, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily complicated. People use those terms interchangeably, but they're actually very different from one another. And the way in which you think about culture mapping, I think, embodies complexity because you're looking at spaces in their totality and trying to pull insights from them. And, and even in, in walking through that, it can be hard to explain it. So I want to give you some leeway to kind of walk down that road a little bit and, and walk us through what you, what you mean by culture mapping and maybe start in the origin of why you think it was necessary. Maybe that's the best place to start. Yeah. The origins of culture mapping really started with that particular issue of the declining usefulness of demographics. And uh, we actually started using it in looking at what was becoming an interest to everybody in the early 2000s and looking at millennials. And so everybody was chasing that. But they were looking at this demographic in a very singular way. Culture mapping really has a root in sociology. And if you look at the roots of sociology, culture is more than the sum of its parts. That's, you know, Durkheim. And so when you look at understanding culture, you have to see it less as a conclusion and understand, really see it as part of a process and see it as a constant changing set of dynamics and mechanics. So what culture mapping does is it allows us to see those mechanics, understand how they're functioning. The root of that is really language. Language is, it opens up, it's how people make sense of the world they live in. It's how they find affinity groups that shape particular ideologies around meaning for them. If you can see how that's shaping, you can kind of see these changes that have to do with everything from the food that we eat to the cities that we live in. And that's a very important part of it, I would say, too, is that for every single company, every single sort of strategic need right now is that we can get caught in a category, we can get caught in a product. Everything lives in a world, and culture is about that world. And we have to understand it as being sort of this moving, changing shifts in meaning and be able to see how that change is actually happening. And so that's essentially what it does. It allows us to see the stuff that isn't as obvious. That sort of is what it is. You can't ask people questions about what they want. You have to kind of see that change in the language and the behaviors that are sort of a little under the surface happening naturally within these particular groups within society. What's really interesting is 
you said quite a few things that obviously resonated with me. One, when you start to talk about language and Grant McCracken is someone who in his definition of culture, he likens it very much to a language that it's something that culture is something that acts on us invisibly. Like we're in this room right now, we're both speaking English. We're not thinking about the mechanics of how we're putting our words together. Maybe a little bit more because we're in an interview situation. So I'm thinking about my questions, listening to your answers, and then we're kind of responding there. So maybe this particular laboratory is slightly different from when we're moving Mm -hmm. around in the world. But I think the concept is still the same, that the language is something that's just happening. We're not thinking about it. It's moving on us invisibly. And then when I work back to my particular definition of culture, it talks about this shared world of ideas and our values. And it's manifesting through people, places that are both formal and informal. And it sounds to me that this culture mapping process is very much tied to looking at the totality of that experience and pulling out what you say is a little bit under the radar, but it sounds like they're almost things that are happening invisibly. Yeah, I mean, the problem with a lot of research that we've had over the last, say, 30, 40 years is, has been very much psychology-based. And that really is looking at the individual. And it's assuming that the individual is making decisions and articulating those in an isolated world. And so if you're thinking about how people behave, That behavior has as much to do with people that have influenced them and are sort of shifting them cognitively, but they can't articulate. If you were to ask them specifically how they felt about that, they wouldn't know. And they would almost even tell you that they're not influenced by anybody. But the fact is, we are, as primates, social creatures. And that social process is how we acquire language to solve problems of change. An example of that, simple example of that, is if you look at how our common attitudes towards food have changed over the last 10 years, there's been a shift. Every client that I have who is a big food company deals with the issue that big food is bad. How did that happen? How did that sort of take process? That didn't go through a process of individuals. It was an incremental process of shared beliefs and values that were shared via language. We're even at a point now, I can read, that we've almost created a problem with that because we've replaced what we had as food as organic food, but that organic food now could just as well kill us because it's not sustainable. So in a way, you sort of create this aspiration in culture, but then you have to sort of be looking at what's happening underneath now as that begins to break down as well. People don't have all the answers themselves. And that's the issue, is that you're trying to understand with culture how they're drawing that language in to solve those things as they need them. And I say with food, the obvious example was you could tell that it was beginning to change because it wasn't how people fed themselves, is what they told other people they were feeding their children. And so it became a signifier of another change. And those are the kinds of things you look for is that sort of system view of kind of connected change of changing values over time. Let's keep the food example going a little bit. When you're starting to do this map, when you're starting to overlay, to understand what people are thinking about in this particular space of food, where is it that you start? Does it start in places where people are buying food? Does it start where people are preparing the food? 
Are we building toward a different environments? Like, for example, are our kitchen spaces looking different because of how we're thinking about food now? I think that the most simplest way of understanding kind of a structure is of mapping is that everything that becomes policy at some point, and you could say organic has become policy, then has a shadow to it. It has a shadow world that says, you've made that policy, but have you actually solved the problems of what we need in terms of food? In terms of what's changing right now, a new trend is a resurgence of science in food. So there's actually a resurgence of something called GMO organic and sort of reclaiming of genetics in food, but with an ethical component to it, sort of doing it the right way. Because the problem is, is the answer isn't organic. The answer is food that we need and can trust and that we can continue. It sort of has a sustainability to it. So when you look at that, you always have to see that relationship between when things become law in society, there's always that activism that fights against and says, you know what, you don't have it right. And so what we do is we look at those patterns and we find that starting point. We did it when we were looking at the future of cities and looking at how bicycles and sort of like urban planning tied to bicycles became kind of a signifier of a broader idea, broader ideological change that was happening in terms of what people wanted out of livability in cities. That becomes one pathway that you can kind of see. And it sort of opens up a lot of different clusters of, you're looking at people. You're basically looking at groups of people who are in the future before everybody else is, essentially. But as everybody else does it, when you scale anything and a lot of people do something, it becomes corrupted. That's essentially, when things become law, there's always sort of like, well, you make compromises. And so you've got to look at those that call out those compromises and recognize, are you staying in it, in that shadow world to be able to sort of retool and re-engage the strategy to make sure that you haven't just sort of arrived at a, you know, one way of doing it. A quote that I use a lot from E.F. Schumacher, who I love on a lot of different levels, he's written quite a few books that emphasize small is beautiful is one of his most well-known books. This idea that our economics should look a different way, should serve human beings. And, you know, he's writing all this stuff in seventies as a benchmark of as maybe our culture is coming back around to these ideas that scale and size is not always the thing. Maybe he's someone that people will continue to pick up and revisit and what have you. I bring him up to reference that he talks about culture in this way, and I'm going to paraphrase the quote, but I use it in presentations a lot, that the map is not the territory. And, and what he means by that is that the map can tell us how to get from point A to point B, but it doesn't tell us what's going on in the ground. And I think about a New York City subway map. It can tell me how to get from Grand Street to West 4th, but it can't tell me about the makeup of the people on the ground. It can't tell me what the stores are like, what the streets are like, what's under construction, what does it look and feel like, how much of it is gentrified and all the rest. So you get my point. It sounds that despite the fact that we're saying culture mapping in this way, that you're doing that territory work. It sounds like there's a lot of really deep stuff that's going on. I would sort of jump in on that in terms of uh, policy sort of issue right now in terms of the Green New Deal, as an example. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Green New Deal is an example of something that is a policy aspiration. And the problem that we have, I mean, it's and is incredibly important to have those. But what happens when we have kind of a scale mindset all the time is we kind of go, 
But we can't do that. You try to create these sort of in-between kinds of strategies. When you map things in this way, is that you really look at finding what is that true starting point of looking at what is the broken in the story that you currently have. That's art. That's philosophy. We have ethical issues with AI. We have ethical issues with the food that we consume. We have ethical issues in terms of do we have sustainable cities, but we're building them into these megapolises and so forth, and you know that may be impossible for many people to afford. You sort of look at, are you looking at kind of what kind of jobs are these people going to have that live in these future cities that we have? There are people who think about that and articulate that. They articulate that in a way that has nothing to do with necessarily immediately putting something to action and designing something. And you have to recognize that that has a value. It doesn't stay there, though. Others pick that up. You realize, I mean, going back to my food example, organic food farming is more of a philosophical approach to what farming is. Permaculture is another example now, is a philosophical approach. But there are those that then take that philosophy and apply it into techniques. They apply it into the techniques that are not scalable at this point, but they work with that particular way of doing things. In terms of food, it's always the chefs. Chefs are very concerned with food security right now. And they make food in a way that sort of says, like, they don't just want to feed a few people. They want to have everybody have this taste of the way things should be. You want to look at that progress in this map of going from a philosophical point of descent from existing policy to being able to see who's then integrating that into a design of new techniques that then others can then sort of take on, and we all do. The problem is, is that when it becomes something more people do, we immediately get amnesia. We cheapen it. And we sort of say, am I done? I've got a new product. Is it organic? Is it natural? Is it whatever? And it doesn't have any of that philosophical rooting to it. And that's the issue. For companies now is that they have to stay as much in the shadow world as they stay in the light. And they have to understand that there's always a shadow that's going to be cast in everything that they do. And they have to recognize, I mean, AI, I think, is the most complex of those issues. Cameras in everything. I mean, there's a camera in every single device because we can. It's just because we can. And then we start trying to sort of backlog why it's important and what it's going to do. But we really haven't thought about the world that we start creating Look at the children who were three years old who were growing up with cameras staring at them everywhere. What kind of people will they be 30, 40 years from now? That's the kind of thing that there are some people in society who are thinking about that. We need to study that, understand kind of how those particular ideologies that could be useful for us, for our sustainability as a people, as a culture as a whole, can actually be. Cameras, to me, are a symbol of really surveillance. They look out into the world when we take images and what have you, but they also reflect back in on what we're doing. I think about the nascent internet, for example, where everything was rooted in maybe the values and ideas of anonymity. So when you first got online, I remember when, at least when I first got online, I didn't, if it wasn't a school account, which really happened in business school, not in college, but if I was online for any personal use, It wasn't my real name. It was some sort of made-up AOL account that didn't reflect really who I was, where I was, what I was doing. Commerce was not driving the internet in the way that it is now. Of course, there was commerce, but it wasn't as ubiquitous. 
And I think we see a shift now the opposite way, where people are very public online. And that comfort level with being very personal, in my mind, has made them comfortable with also being observed. Are you seeing? I think they're comfortable until they're not comfortable. I think the problem is, is that we, there's a whole kind of set of unknowns that exist in terms of how this technology, and we still are kind of in this sort of gray zone of believing that and hoping that it might have good outcomes. It changes when you suddenly have a lot of that information being sort of given back to you by an employer. And it starts sort of evaluating you in ways that you could never have imagined that it would. Your insurance premium changes because, you know, cameras show that you are of a certain type of pattern of behavior that actually is more of a greater risk. We have to kind of understand that that's the issue in terms of a lot of what happens with technology is that most people don't have it within themselves. There's a paradox. They want privacy, but they don't really know what to do about it. So when you look at from a mapping standpoint, you look at those particular pockets that are thinking about it before others. How is it that suddenly, you know, I see a a VPN commercial almost every five minutes now? It's because there were journalists that needed a level of privacy and were thinking about those kind of frameworks. The problem is, is that we then turn that into kind of a marketing kind of function. And that idea of VPN doesn't mean what it did at the beginning. These are the kind of issues. The other is, is you look at if you have a certain amount of money now, you can be invisible. There's actually a, you know, a trend in sort of the speakeasy of, of life is basically you have doors that allow you to, you know, nobody will ever see you. And you can, if you buy a phone that's $20,000 or more or whatever, it's all about having a level of stealth that nobody else can afford. And so you sort of wonder, there's already, when we look at this from a culture mapping standpoint, you're looking at what are immune responses to things that are being sort of propagated in terms of the existing state of technology. We're getting an indication of what our future is because we're already getting immune response. Rich people can do it in a certain way. Other people living on the edges who have to worry about their life and safety are also doing it and speaking out. Are we listening to that? Mm-hmm. Are we really paying attention? Or are we simply, you know, you go to CES, Consumer Electronics Show, and it would seem as though everybody would want to measure every incremental thing in their life, but they have no understanding of how they would even use the data that they're being told they're supposed to measure. I can have a bed that tells me all the different ways in which I'm sleeping, but how is that really playing out? I know who could use that. My insurance company could use that. And that's the problem is that we haven't gotten to the point where The public understands that. So we have to look at who does think about that before, because it's not, it will just happen. That's the thing. The thing about culture is that it is a biological system. It has a natural order to things, is that when things become dysfunctional in that way, is that we get more in terms of reaching and finding things as an alternative. And what happens is you get kind of unexpected, you get chaos a little bit. You get sort of like, things aren't reliable. It's to your point about advertising is that I would say if you're under 25, you expect everything is a transaction. But that doesn't mean that it's a transaction like it was for people who grew up in the birth of advertising. It's just become numb. And these are these shifts in the way people are thinking about their life in the sense that We covered a a lot of different things, and I want to jump on 
this idea of listening to margins, because another catchphrase, right? Culture comes out of the margins. And when you describe this idea of how people are coping with things, these defense mechanisms that they have in place, those of us who are the wealthy or the well-resourced, they have one particular way in which to think about the way in which their lives are going to play out. So you read about people buying the bunkers. Even when I think about space travel, as someone who came of age prior to, I would say, yes, I knew the moon landings and all that kind of stuff, but really the non-science fiction idea of space, first was science fiction was Star Trek and Star Wars, but the real manifestation of space being a reality to me was the space shuttle. So I remember Columbia and Challenger and the explosion, all that kind of stuff framed my childhood. All of that, at least in my mind, was happening through the sphere of public good, right? It was NASA that was a government agency, but they were our imagination and all this kind of stuff. And now we're faced with whether it's Richard Branson or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos that have a desire to privatize something that was very much in my mind the public good, no different than a highway. The recent debate between Jack Ma and Elon Musk in China was was really interesting in terms of like what kind of the outcome of Silicon Valley kind of ideology around technology and kind of a, an optimism around technology really means. When talking about kind of a future, Elon Musk sits on the side of let's prepare and go to Mars. Let's get the hell out of here, really. And also has a view about AI that is very kind of optimistic about what machine learning and what machines are actually capable of. While there's actually kind of a a remarkable skepticism that Jack Ma has about that and thinks very much about the stuff that we need to do on this planet. And it speaks to the point that you just made, which is, you know, the shift towards away from public good I mean, I grew up in the time of NASA, and I was an American kid growing up in England, though, and it was like my first things were these rockets and whatever, but it was like governments were investing in this kind of idea of public good. Now you hear it talking about, it's like, who actually does benefit? And if you're not sitting on the right side of that ideologically, does that create some kind of a, a problem? And so I think that The thing to be most concerned about is if anybody is too certain that they know what that future is. There is no such thing as crystal ball kind of foresight. It's that the people who are true forecasters understand the dynamics and they can understand different things that could change and are likely to change. And that's more the issue. Silicon Valley tends to, because of the structure around how it's funded, tends to have to have a very rose-colored idea as to what's going to happen with technology. And it really is, you know, the recent news around Facebook has become kind of a problem because the story that Facebook tells about transparency and what Facebook is to us is really just the pitch that they gave to the advertisers and the venture capital people. And so, like, it's sort of, you have to do that, you know, because scale is good and we're doing great stuff and we can just make more things. No. Some of it you start thinking about, maybe you need to make less things and you need to stop. That's the point where dissent becomes future regulation. And you start seeing it more in Europe than you do in the U.S. because it's, it's much more of a public good kind of an ideological mindset that's shared than we have here. That's definitely sort of 
the issue. We're kind of like, we can't be too certain and we have to kind of see ourselves sort of staying in the flux of how culture is going to change in these ways. How do you get people comfortable with ambiguity? Because clients often want or demand certainty before they do anything, right? They're in the risk minimization business, right? So when they hire someone like you or they hire someone like me and they're looking for ideas toward what they should do next, if that's sort of the charge that they're looking at. It's about not wasting money. I mean, it really is, it's so practical. This is the problem. I mean, a lot of the, the problem with doing foresight related work and even anthrop- you know, anthropology, I mean, it's all connected. People tend to sort of see them as these sort of soft things that would be nice to know that, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, two things that are on my mind right now. One client, I'm starting up a new, completely from scratch, a new bourbon. And one of the issues I would say is how we build this bourbon. I know a recession is coming. And the fact of the matter is, is that how we build that particular product from the ground up, from where it's made, how it's made, how it's packaged, all of those things has to account for something that I know. It's almost easy. You could throw products at people. They're doing pods of Glenfiddich or something now. <laughs> like basically, we live there's in a a, pod, we live pod. <laughs> the pod world, we're in right? A pod reality. Yeah. The and it's like, of the body snatchers taught us nothing. Well, it's weird because it feels, you know, to, to me, I'm of a certain age that it feels a lot like a different version of the late 80s. We're running and gunning and marketing a lot of the things that we have, and we're sort of hoping for things to sort of stay the same. The fact is, is that they're not. And so when you look at helping clients in this way, you're trying to give them resiliency to the strategy. And so it's not any one thing that they do. I mean, all companies are really kind of beginning to think this way. It's sort of like you can't think in terms of acquisition. You have to think in terms of investment. You know, you don't just buy up other smaller companies that are doing things that you're not doing. You have to think about how you bring in that kind of thinking to sort of change the DNA of a company. A food company, for example, realizes that, you know, plant-based products are certainly going to be a good portion of what they need to do. You can't just buy that. And like, how does that affect other things that you make? It's as much about, again, philosophical roots, building new techniques and capabilities, building them in a way that doesn't cheapen them. So you over market it and kill it. And so have to start all over again from scratch. And so there's a part of it that really has to do with like being prepared for the unexpected is sort of the way in which we end up sort of speaking a lot to clients in that way. And it's, you know, it's just, it's become easier because I think the world has become more volatile. And that concludes part one of the deep dive conversation with Tim Stock. Tim and I discuss culture mapping and the relevance and necessity in a volatile business environment to view insight work as an investment rather than a cost. In part two, Tim and I will talk about how the business and societal volatility affects design and policy and how those two elements need to take on a central role. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you and see you on the other side.